the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program is sponsored by Ron Geyer Roofing. The Bible describes events that will mark the last days or end times. 2 Timothy 3.1 says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Matthew 24.44 tells us, Therefore you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect Him. Bible teacher Ron Geyer leads us through Scripture that will help us to remain strong in the Lord. End Time Insights with Bible teacher Ron Geyer starts now. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Ron Geyer with more End Time Insights. Thank you so much for tuning in. We appreciate it. Today, we're finishing up on the book of Pergamos in the seven churches. It's the third church. This is lesson number four. And we will finish it. Very, very important teaching on the book of Pergamos. We see the judgment of God. And don't forget, these churches, Jesus starts off with his letters in each church with finding something really good to talk to us about the churches, which is good because, you know, we're told God loves us. We're told Jesus loves us. But he makes sure the letters are always inclusive. They are correct down to the minutest detail because he wants his church glorious. He wants us without spot or wrinkle. And it's really on him. It's his church. And he is held responsible for how we do. So you can understand Jesus is perfect. He does things with excellence. He doesn't make mistakes. So when we read this today and when we reiterate what we closed with last week about the judgment of Jesus upon those that were holding to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, the doctrine of Balaam, when we see Jesus and the judgment he puts upon us, it's really brutal. But at the end of the day, know that judgment is a huge aspect of the love of God, and we just ignore that. We think it's not appropriate to talk about that today. But if you read the Gospels, if you read Jesus' words in the Gospels, if you read Jesus' letters in the churches, you'll find out that when we love someone, we care for them. And when we care for them, we correct them, we rebuke them, we chastise them. So let's pick up again where we ended last week. We were talking about verse 16 in Revelation chapter 2. He's rebuking the church at Pergamos because they had people in the church who were teaching the doctrine of Balaam which is compromised, and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which is compromised through carnality also. And so in verse 16, he says, repent, or else, I got, or else is when I was growing up all the time. They were never good. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly at a gallop. I'm going to hurry. I'm not going to lollygag. I'm not going to dilly-dally. I'm going to deal with this. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them Who's them? Those that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, those that hold the doctrine of Balaam. I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. We spoke of repentance earlier. You know, it's not remorse. Don't ever confuse with uh, repentance with remorse. Remember, Judas, he went and he hung himself. And the Bible talks about the fact that he repented himself. And yet, The word for repent there is not metanoel. It's not the same as it is when God's meaning that someone's going to go ahead and change the direction that they're going in. 
The word there used was different, and it refers to remorse. Judas has remorse. He was sorry, but he never repented. Totally different dynamic. It allowed Judas to go ahead and take his own life, whereas we see other instances where people repent, and like here in the church, and Jesus is able to deliver them and bring them back into a relationship with God. So that's the difference between remorse and repentance. Note Jesus does not come to the church as a whole. He says, repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and fight against them. He's singling out those that hold to these doctrines of compromise. He's going to deal with them. And the implication is that he has told them about this before and they've just shined them on. So no longer am I going to give you grace to get by with this. I'm going to come. I'm going to come at a gallop. I'm going to come quickly. And those that are holding to this false doctrine, to this compromise, to this carnality, I'm going to deal with. But I'm going to deal with them with the sword of my mouth. He's not just coming to the entire church. He's going to come to them who are doing things wrong. The Greek word for quickly is tachis. It indicates a swift, high-speed movement like a galloping horse. He's not going to delay any further. This is an infection in his church. He wants it out before further damage can occur. He's reached a point. Okay, I'm going to deal with this now. I've let it go, uh, hoping that you would repent. You haven't. Therefore, I'm coming now, and I'm going to fight will fight with you. Remember, he's already spoken to them about this in the prior. And they're out of time now. You are out of time. I'm going to deal with this now. He's not coming to try to plead with them or try to convince them. He is coming to go to war with them. Very serious stuff here. And if you think about the churches today, we're on the precipice of that same type of judgment because of the things we allow in the church, because of the carnality, because of the lack of holiness, because of the sin that we put up with, because of the fact that we compromise at every opportunity, whether it's closing the church, whether it's only opening in part, whether we allow the world to dictate to us the behavior in our churches. I mean, Jesus allows us grace to get this right. He gives us room for repentance. But at some point, he said, that's it. And with the church at Pergamos, he was done. This is it. The Greek word here for war is polemus, P-O-L-E-M-U-S. The word doesn't mean a small skirmish or a singular battle. It means all-out war. I mean, this is Jesus Christ, the head of the church, King of kings, Lord of lords. And he is pronouncing judgment on the church at Pergamos. And it is all-out war. This is an all-out effort by the Lord of the church for the express purpose of defeating an opponent. Who's the opponent, Satan? No. The opponent is those that hold to the doctrine of Balaam, that hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The opponent whom Jesus is declaring war on are those who are full of compromise, carnality, cowardice. He's had it. This will not happen in my church. This will not go unanswered in my church. I will deal with this. I will fix this in my church. Luke twelve forty nine. I am come to send fire on the earth. And what does it matter? What will I if it be already kindled? There was a fire, a burning fire of destruction already taking place in the church at Pergamos. And Jesus said, that's enough. It's burnt as much good word as I will allow it to. It is infected. There's a cancer in the church. It has infected as many people as I will allow it to. I am putting this to an end. Barclay, uh, William Barclay, wonderful old-time Bible scholar. The Jews firmly believed that God would judge other nations. And they firmly believe he would judge other nations by one standard and that Jesus would judge them by another standard. That the very fact that a man was a Jew would be enough to absolve him of his sin, of his crime. 
however much we may wish to eliminate the element of judgment from the message of Jesus Christ, which is what we're doing in America today, however much we would wish to eliminate the element of judgment from the message of Jesus, it remains stubbornly and unalterably there. Love, God is love, absolutely. Love carries judgment with it. We do the same thing in the church. It's false, it's heretical, and it's destructive. Remember, these are destructive heresies. When you don't believe that God's going to deal with sin in your church, when you don't believe that God's going to deal with sin in your life harshly, permanently, powerfully, then you're mistaken and you're going to fall under judgment and you run the risk of falling away. Jesus is plainly telling the pastor at the church at Pergamos to let those in the church know that it's war. If they continue in these doctrines, it is all out war. If the pastor was part of the compromise, then this lesson and threat will apply to him just as well. We don't get at free out-of-jail cards because we hold a position. Touch Not My Anointed was written to the Jews. It's got nothing to do with the pastors of your church. If he's sinning, God wants him straightened out. But look at this. Jesus, I will fight with the sword of my mouth. And this is where we ended. But I'm saying this again because it is so powerful. It is so descriptive, A, of the judgment of God, B, of the love of God, C, of the care that God has for you and me as members of the body of Christ. He will come and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. We know from other scriptures that the word is what is delivered with the sword of his mouth. It's a sharp, two-edged sword that cuts both ways. It cuts for truth and it cuts for judgment. But the word Jesus chooses here to describe the particular sword to be used is the Ramphaya sword. This was a sword used by the Thracians in the battles that they had with the Romans. It was the most feared weapon of this time. The Romans hated it because it was so deadly. Basically, it was a sickle, a two-edged sickle, sharp, strong, metallic sickle on a pole. And the Romans would fear it because the Thracians, they would wield it back and forth. This thing was strong and powerful. It would cut through their armor. It would cut through their bone. When a troop of these Thracians with these swords went into battle, they just created a swath, like as if one was cutting down wheat in harvest. And it was very destructive. And Jesus is giving the warning, this is the sword I'm using. This is the weapon of choice that I'm going to be fighting against you with. The Thracians would plow into the Roman troops. They'd swing it back and forth. It was a powerful weapon. It cut through their armor, sliced through their bone as well. Everywhere it was used, the result was usually a bloodbath. And that's the point that Jesus is making. This is my church. I died for it. I created it. I own it. I will not allow you to put this garbage, this sin, this compromise in my church. I will not have it. If you continue to disobey me, I'm going to deal with you. They continue to disobey him. He's not coming to talk to them, to plead with them, to compromise, to debate with them. He is coming to fight with them. I will run to its defense of my church. I will massacre brutally all those who are involved in this traitorous behavior within my church. I will give no quarter. Let's go back briefly to verse 12, though, in our first lesson in Pergamos, because there's something you got to see. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which has the sharp sword with two edges. This sword not only had two edges, but it's a sharp sword, and that sharp word is just so amazing. You know, I I don't think there's another series of books, and I hold the Gospels here, too. I hold Paul's writings in uh, Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians and all of those other epistles. I think they all come short of revealing who Jesus is than the book of Revelation when he's talking to the seven churches. Because look at this here. 
I wanted to wait until we got to this point so that you could catch the full impact of what Jesus is saying when he references the sharp sword with two edges. We already know the weapon of choice in the language here is the most deadly sword imaginable. It was the rumfire sword. But in verse 12, Jesus adds the word sharp to it. This is fascinating for many reasons, but it gives us a further glimpse into the loving care Jesus has for his church. You may get that in the epistles. You may get that sometimes when Jesus is talking to Peter or John or the other disciples, but here it's demonstrated. This is all about the loving care Jesus has for his church. The Greek word for sharp there, it is oxus, O-X-U-S, and it connotes or it means not only a clean cut or a keen cut, but the word can actually be translated as vinegar. The point that's being made This sword is not only sharp, it not only cuts cleanly, but this process also has an anesthetizing aspect to it. Jesus, in his judgment on those that refuse to listen, he will use a sword as a surgeon uses a scalpel, where the edge of the sword has been anesthetized so as to protect the good cells while the surgery of judgment is being performed against the infected areas. Do you get that? This is wild. He is lovingly protecting the rest of the church from his war on the wicked within the church. This is no out-of-control slashing of a madman. This is a highly skilled, this is a highly planned surgical strike to remove the infection from within his church, all the while having care not to wound the innocent. I love that. That's probably one of my favorite scriptures in the entire Bible, one of my most favorite pictures that's painted about the way Jesus deals with the church. We can't fear the judgment of Jesus in his church. It's it's for good. It's for our good. It's for our benefit. If we've got wrong doctrine, he's given us time after time, warning after warning, grace after grace to fix it. But if we continue in those doctrines, then he's going to get rid of those that are affecting the church because he doesn't want them infecting us any further. Verse 17, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saith he that receiveth it. Now this is interesting because in the days of when this was written, the Greek culture, they walked around with stones, and white stones were significant. They represented victory to maybe Olympians. If you were a person of prominence, you had a white stone, and that white stone actually announced you as somebody of importance, and it would give you entryway into the theater. It was almost like a a credit card or even a get-out-of-jail-free card because you were someone who had done something, maybe in battle you exemplified great valor, maybe you won an Olympic contest, whatever. A white stone signified victory. And so here, Jesus is saying, if you overcome... I will give you a white stone. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcomes, will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone. The white stone, Jesus is saying, they may give citizens here of Pergamos, of the cities, a white stone because they did great things. Remember, go back to the early part of the church. Jesus was commending them because they were doing great things. He goes, I've got a white stone for you, and I will give you that white stone. Not only will I give you a white stone, But with a new name written on it, the people in Pergamos, the pagans, they would have a stone and they would write the name of a certain God on it. 
and they would protect the name from other people. Because if you could have a stone with a white stone and you had the name of your God on it, it could be anybody. It could have been the rabbit or the toad down the road. But if nobody else knew that name, it connotated that you have power over that false God, over that idol. And you could get that idol to work for you, to do things for you. That's why it was important for them to have a white stone with a name on it. Now, these are dumb idols. They don't talk. They don't speak. There's no power there. And yet Jesus is saying, I'll give you a white stone and I'll give you a new name with it. And I'm, I don't know what that name is, but the fact that Jesus is going to give them a new name, he changed Abraham's name from Abram to Abraham. He became the father of a multitude. He changed Peter's name from Little Rock to Big Stone, and he was able to go ahead and turn Peter into a king in the kingdom of God that would win three and five thousand people to Christ at a sitting, made him strong. That's what God does. And so Jesus is saying, I've got a new stone for you. I've got a new name written on it, which no man knows, saying he that receiveth it. And in the pagan world, that was important. When Jesus says, he that has an ear to hear, uh, basically Jesus is saying, listen, Who's ever listening? This is what I got for you. We all have ears, but we all aren't listening, are we? There's a move in the Spirit, a move by the Spirit of God today. It's a wind that is blowing, that is trying to get our attention. He, Jesus, he lets nothing slide anymore with the church of Pergamos. He's dealing with them now. This is, to Pergamos, that great and terrible day of the Lord. He could have destroyed America several times over. I mean, at what point does he get tired of allowing us to kill our children in the womb? He could have pronounced hard judgment on his church already for putting up with abortion and compromise. Notice the messages all don't come to just one select church. Jesus said he's speaking unto the church, to the churches, right? He that has an ear, listen to what the Spirit says, unto the churches. When he talks to one church in judgment or or blessing, he's talking to all of them. He's talking to my church today. He's talking to your church today. Notice the messages all don't come singularly to a church. I could say he's talking to West Houston Christian Center. He's talking to First Baptist. He's talking to a Church Without Walls. He's talking to Lakewood Church. He's talking to the Methodist Church, the Catholic Church. This message is for every church. Don't think it's not. Not only to those seven, but to every other house of worship that Jesus calls his own. But remember, here, despite the destructive power of his victory over those that are committing compromise, Jesus is not an enemy. He's not the enemy of the church. He's not the enemy of the saints. We become his through our actions, and at some point he must deal with us when we're sinning, or he wouldn't be who he says he is. If God never dealt with sin, he'd be a liar. If he was a liar, he wouldn't be God. And if he wasn't God, then we'd still be dead in our sin. But he is God, and he must deal with our sin. Our job in all of this today, as Americans in American churches, is to stay focused on his word. Nothing else really matters. We are so easily distracted. We get distracted by COVID. We get distracted by our success. I mean, we get distracted by by sickness. Whatever it is, we get distracted. We get our eyes off the word. God gave us a king like none before him. President Trump. We got distracted by President Trump. We put all our eggs in the Trump basket. God bless President Trump. Great man. Great man. Yet... He didn't get reelected. That could have been God. We're blaming the devil. You know, Israel's suffering right now. They're about to remove, or they just did remove, President, uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And, you know, people say, well, the world is falling into pieces. Well, no, it's not. The pieces are falling into place. If God chooses to remove certain righteous leaders from their role as kings, it's because he has a better purpose. He has a plan. So don't blame everything on the devil. In my, my sphere, in my grouping, in my word of faith group, 
the devil gets blamed for everything. You got to remember, we have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. In my life, personally, as a sanguine temperament, who loves life, who loves beauty, who loves, I love playing, I love running, I love the park, I love playing golf. I love these things. I love money. I love spending money. All of these things are carnal things, and yet my temperament, they can become a snare to me if I am not careful. They become a distraction to me. Jesus says to him that overcomes, to the church of Pergamos, what did they have to overcome? They had to overcome the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. They had to overcome compromise, cowardice, and carnality. And he's saying to him that overcomes, overcomers demonstrate a type of uh, superiority against their opponents, against any obstacle. In the midst of trial, Jesus has promises, but to the church at Pergamos, they had to overcome the lure of immorality, the fear of persecution, and the threat of deception from within, which led them to compromise. We just don't overcome once. It's a lifestyle. Overcoming is a lifelong endurance test. We are to overcome continuously. We go from victory to victory, from faith to faith. Each victory built on the last one. We are called to live a lifestyle of overcoming. In America today, if Jesus was writing this to us, we would have come pretty much the same things and fallen for them. The lure of sexual attractions, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the arrogance, the appeal of, of uh, carnal riches, uh, you know, the cowardice that we exhibit when Satan tells us to run, we run. This is the things that American churches must overcome. Jesus then said, I will give of the hidden manna. And basically the hidden manna in my eyes, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And so to me, the hidden manna, it's hidden from the world, but it's not hidden to me. I am the bread of life. Amen. He told the woman by the well, he that eats of me or drinks of the water that I'm going to give you will never thirst again. This could be looked at many ways, but my preference would be to look at it as Jesus offering himself to the church as an eternal meal. The bread of life to this group of saints. Balaam tricked the Jews to eat food that was sacrificed to idol. Jesus says, I am the eternal idol. Take Eat of my body, drink of my blood. He offered them eternal communion with himself as a reward if they would overcome. Then, of course, there's the pictures of uh, heaven's supply. Uh, for our five cents round, my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Just like the original manna was sent to feed the Jews in the wilderness, God promises to provide for the people in Pergamos as well. There's much significance to the white stones. There's much significance to the fact that Jesus is going to give us of himself as an eternal meal. Uh, remember, there was the right of the sword that was given to the proconsul. Pergamus was the seat of the Roman government. And when Jesus is referencing that he's coming with the sword, he's letting him know you're governor there, the carnal governor, the one who was persecuting my people, the church, he may be wielding a sword that could take care of your life, that could end it, lock off your head in a minute, but I wield the true sword. I am the one that has the sword. And just as this sword, one edge is going to pronounce judgment within the church, the other end of that sword is going to pronounce judgment upon those that abuse my people. And I love it because the white stone when you had a trial also in Rome, they had black stones and they had white stones. And the jury would go to meet, and each one was given a white stone and a black stone, the jurors. And depending how many stones came out, uh, they put their stone in and they voted. If more white stones came out than the black stones, then you were handed a white stone and you were found not guilty. Same thing, when Jesus promises them a white stone, he's saying, you're not guilty. I've cleansed you. The blood has washed you from your sin. You are not guilty. Guilty. 
It all pales the things that they do in Pergamos, the symbolic white stones, the right of the sword, the compromise, the things that they're doing. All of that pales when it's in front of what Jesus Christ has done for us and what awaits us who are living a life of overcoming. Jesus didn't promise anyone anything unless they overcome. I know it may seem like it's harsh, but when you consider you get a clean slate. Remember, no nice tries, no attaboys. He doesn't do that. But he expects you to win, and he should expect you to win. He's given you his name. He's given you the word of God. He's planted the author of the book inside you to lead you and guide you in the way that you should go. He's bent his blood for you. You get to use the name of Jesus. You can talk to him anytime you need to for wisdom and counsel. You are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Did I mention you get angels also to help you do to do the things that you need to do to focus on his kingdom, to represent his kingdom. He has given you a measure of the gift of faith. Everything that you need to be victorious, everything that you need to overcome, he has given you it. We are all set to go. All we must do is believe everything he said is true. That is why I am suffering as I am, Paul writes, Timothy writes, I'm sorry, Paul writes to Timothy, yet this is no cause for shame because I know in whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to guard those, to keep those things which I have committed unto him against that day. You make sure that you trust God and let him have his way in your life and you too will become an overcomer. Thank you for joining us for End Time Insights with Ron Geyer. Listen again next Sunday night at 8 on 100.7 The Word, where faith comes by hearing. You can also listen to the podcast of this program by going to kkht.com. If you would like to contact Ron, email him at gospelguy at comcast.net.